0: Well, church, amen. Uh, I am uh, honored to be able to be here with you today and to share God's word with you. And so we're going to be hearing from Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And so please turn there in your Bibles with me now. But while you do that, I want to share a story with you. It's actually a little bit about my childhood. And so uh, for those that don't know, I was born in New Delhi, India. But for a short period of time in my life, uh, I actually grew up in a very small country in the Middle East called Kuwait. And my family had settled down there, and they had had a fairly established life. Uh, Suddenly, though, everything in the summer of 1990 changed. It was at that time that, completely unexpected to us, the country of Iraq, or Iraq as some people say it, uh, to the north, decided to invade Kuwait. Kuwait. Now at that time, or sorry, this later became known to be the Gulf War, but at that time my parents, uh, they couldn't prepare, and tanks came into the country, soldiers invaded, our bank accounts were frozen, and the entire country came to a standstill. Now my parents, like many others, decided that this was the time to leave, and, and rightfully so, and they had to leave behind all of their belongings in one night. By God's grace, my parents and I, along with a few of my parents' friends, were able to make it to some buses that were helping people flee the country, not unlike what we're seeing today. And fortunately, by God's grace, we were able to leave. Now, unfortunately, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh, they began to light fires to these massive oil wells in the country that Kuwait had had at the time. And these oil fires, some of you might remember, uh, these oil fires burned for months and months. The clouds had turned black and oil actually started to rain for a period of time, and no one knew how to stop these oil fires. And so it was at that time that my dad, who is an engineer, he was called to go back to Kuwait as one of the first people that was contracted to help stop the oil fires. And my mom and I, however, because of the dangerous conditions back there, we weren't allowed to go with him. Now, this was a big period of separation in our lives. Uh, My world as a child had completely changed. You see, as a young kid... I was told that my father, my family, and I would be apart for some time, but I longed for the day that we would be together again. I put a lot of hope in his return. Now, I don't want to undermine in any way that not everyone in this room has that hope, and there are many fathers who go out to war or, due to tragic circumstances, are not reunited with their family, and many different types of family conditions as well, but this is a personal story for me, and as a young kid, you don't always understand the complexities of a situation, and so in my young childlike heart, I just looked forward to the day that my dad would be back again. And so on that note, I remember I started to live every day in light of my father's return. Everything that I did was in anticipation of the day that I would meet my father again. I knew I'd have to give an account to him. He'd ask how things went when he was gone, and I wanted to make my father proud. But at the end of the day, I loved him and I couldn't wait until the day that I saw him again. And eventually, by God's grace, after eight long months of separation, we were reunited once again, once things calmed down in the Middle East. And so why why do I share this story with you? I share it because in many ways, this is a simple illustration, but it is indicative of the hope that we as believers have here on this planet. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ will return. Now, we live our entire lives in light of this reality. We live as believers knowing that one day we will be with our King who makes everything right. And this is our hope. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says this, There's laid up a crown of righteousness which the Lord will, which the Lord will award to all those who have loved His appearing. Or Titus chapter 2 verse 13 calls the appearing of our great glory, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ as our blessed hope. And so friends, the return of Jesus Christ, this is a cornerstone of our faith. We're going to see it all through the scriptures and we're going to see it today as well. Now last week, we mourned the death of Jesus Christ on the cross on Good Friday. We remembered that Christ, God incarnate, God's son came into the world, lived a perfect, sinless life. And died a terrible death as a punishment for our sins upon the cross. But then we celebrated that on the third day he rose again, securing eternal life for all those who trusted him with the free gift of salvation. And so that brings us to today. Whether you have an earthly father or not, no matter how good or bad he was or wasn't, or no matter what life is like here on this side of heaven, for those who have trusted in Christ, we have a perfect Father in heaven who loves us perfectly. And we have a future with him through Jesus Christ. And so just as very real as this moment is right now, one day we will be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so again, let's tur- look at your Bibles now. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. He is risen, but now we'll see that he, that he will return. Let's read these verses together. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray, church, as we go through God's word. Father, we thank you for the glorious gift of knowing you through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that despite the trials, uh, the unpredictable challenges of this world, that, that we can have the hope of a glorious future ahead with you. So as we study 2 Peter today, help us to see this promise, the promise that you will return. And we look forward to the one day when Jesus Christ will make all wrong, will make all wrong right, and when the broken world that we live in will be made new. We know that as believers, we're simply passing through this world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And to be united with Christ is our joy above all things, Father. If we've lost sight of that, help us to remember that today. And if some here don't know that reality, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts through your word. And so help us now by the power of your spirit. Guide us, teach us, minister to our hearts. And let your word be the one that speaks today. Or let your word be what speaks today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin studying our verses today, uh, there is a bit of key context that we need to understand. And so we're going to go through this very quickly, but there's three things that you need to know. Firstly, the Apostle Peter wrote two letters, and that's First and Second Peter that's in your Bibles, just before, uh, 2 Peter is after 1 Peter, what we're reading today. And Peter confirms to us that in his first letter, we are living in a period of time known as the last days. First Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And so the last times, or as someone called it, the last days, this includes the entire period of time between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so we are currently living in the last days, and we have been for the last 2,000 years. Secondly, where we find ourselves in Second Peter today, Peter's addressing that false teachers, sadly, had entered into the church. Now, false teachers, they were wrong about a lot of things, but in this specific context in 2 Peter, they were attacking one big idea. And they were attacking the idea that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would return again in his second coming. And so recognizing this, 2 Peter is written to warn believers about these false teachers, about these scoffers, and to encourage us to trust in God. And then last but not least... Second Peter is written as Peter's last words to the church. Peter tell, or excuse me, Christ in John chapter twenty one said to Peter that he would actually be martyred for his faith, and so Peter, when he writes what we're studying today, he's writing them as his final words to the church, and so it's important to remember this. Church, nobody wastes their final words. I've sadly had the chance to be with a few people uh, in their final moments. And whenever someone speaks their last words, there's a gravity, there's a seriousness, a weight with which you listen to their words. I know many of us have been through that before. And so in the same way, this is where we find ourselves today. And so as we read our text, we want to hear Peter's final words to the church. And so the very first point we can know is this. We can know that Christ will return by remembering the scriptures by remembering the scriptures. Look with me at verse one again. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter says in verse one that he's writing to the beloved. Beloved simply means this. It indicates that he's writing to believers and he's writing to stir up their minds by way of reminder. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, We need stirring up in our own lives as well. We need to be shaken up or woken up at times. We can get so comfortable with our lives and so comfortable with our access and availability to the word of God that we can take his word for granted. We live in this age, uh, or some would call it the abundance of information. Uh, But in this part of the world, I would say the abundance of comfort. And this can be harmful to us. But this verse reminds us that we need to be stirred up. And that's what Peter is doing. Peter is stirring up the minds of the church to refocus on the scriptures. Secondly, we see that Peter is stirring up the minds of fellow believers by way of reminder. Now, a reminder is not something new. A reminder is something that people already know. And so what is the reminder? What is the reminder here that Peter is stirring up their minds with? He goes on in verse two to say this. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What were the predictions of the holy prophets? What was the commandment of the Lord and Savior? Well, I want you to just very quickly here, jump ahead with me, look at verse 10. The prediction that Peter is speaking about is the return of Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come. And so the predictions of the holy prophets, they were this. It was that Christ, the Messiah, is going to come and is going to establish his kingdom. And the commandment of the Lord was simply this. It was, you see it in verses 11 to 13, but it was to live holy, godly lives in order to be ready for his return, knowing that we're going to give an account to him. Friends, Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth. And every man, every woman, every person on this planet is going to be held accountable when they meet the king. The return of Christ and specifically the day of the Lord, this is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. You'll see it all over the place. It's mentioned in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Book of Malachi, and in the New Testament for us, it's mentioned five times as well. But the believers that Peter is speaking to here, they would have known all of these uh, Old Testament scripture references. And he was telling them to stir their minds, remember the promise of Christ's return. For us, I think sometimes we need to be reminded of this as well. You know, 33% of the Bible is prophetic in its nature. There are some theologians that say that over 10,000 verses in the Bible deal specifically and reference a future period of time. And so if we trust the full counsel of God's word, which we do, then we cannot ignore all that we are told about Christ's future return. For the believers reading Peter's letter, this is a great hope. And for us today, we ought to stir our minds to remember this great hope as well. So again, we can know Christ by remembering the scriptures. Let's see our second point, which is this. We can know Christ will return by expecting the scoffers. And so Peter says this, we're going to see the scoffers and their arguments, but Peter says this in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, if anyone in this room here, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, I guarantee you that you have encountered scoffers. Scoffing means to make light of or to disregard something, and a scoffer is one who mocks or ridicules the belief of another, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be in the workplace whether it be in your own family for some of us. Scoffers have been around for a very long period of time. In fact, we saw them at the foot of the cross as well. And so just as people scoff at our faith today, it was happening when the Apostle Peter wrote this letter as well. And the Bible has a lot to say about scoffers. But very similar to our passage today, the letter of Jude in actually verse 18 says this, In the last times... There will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. So as believers, we can expect that in the last times, before Christ returns, a sign of the times will be scoffers. Now again, go back to the second half of verse two. Peter goes on to say this about scoffers. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Why does The scoffer scoff. Why do mockers attack the faith? God's word says it's because they want to follow their own sinful desires. They don't want to hear anything about an upcoming day of judgment where they have to account for every thought, for every action. They don't want to answer to anyone. And they don't want to hear about a God who exists, who knows our every thought, our every deed. Instead, they want to live their own lives however they want it, whenever they want it, and answer to no one but themselves. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us thought this way to some degree before Christ convicted us of our sin. And as believers, we live as servants of God, submitting to his authority, his desire, his will for our lives. But the scoffer, going back to Genesis chapter 3, similar to the serpent in the garden, wants to be like God and therefore wants to live with no accountability, ends up following their own sinful desires. Peter tells us this in verse 4 now as well. He says, the scoffers will come, they'll be following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The scoffers were saying that Christ would not return simply because they've never seen anything miraculous happen. Things are always going to continue on as they have been in the past. Maybe you've heard this today. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, that is the old prophets, every day is the same as yesterday and therefore tomorrow is going to be the same as today. And this is a faulty argument. It's something that's called the argument of uniformity. You don't have to remember that word, but basically it means this. It means, because I've never experienced something extraordinary in my lifetime, nothing extraordinary or unusual will ever happen. Life slowly continues with only small changes adding up over time. This is still the primary thought of our Western, or has been for the last 250 years of our Western society today. We know that in our lives, Even in the occurrence of the past two years, for example, what we thought would happen tomorrow can easily change. And then each of us in our own lives, we've had unexpected things happen to us, whether it be losses or trials or whether it even be unexpected successes as well. The list goes on. And so even experientially, we understand that the argument of uniformity is not valid. I believe there is general uniformity in the world, that there are basic laws that God has put into place. But I believe that God is above those laws as per the scriptures. Massive, unexpected, extraordinary events do occur when the Lord wills it. And last week, for example, we celebrated the entrance of God into the world in human flesh who died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead. And so it is clear We serve a God of miracles who intervenes in the world around us. God is above natural law. And just because today was a certain way does not mean that tomorrow will be the same. Peter goes on in verses 5 to 6 and says this, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and then perished. Peter is recalling the miraculous account of the creation. Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke it, he spoke it into existence by his word. He created something from nothing as only he can. Secondly, Peter goes on to say this. The same world that was created by God was then deluged with water and perished. Peter is referencing here the global flood account of Noah's Ark. And I know many of us have heard about this before. God's word tells us in Genesis chapter seven that there was a time long ago in humanity where evil had become rampant. And as a result of that, God sent a global flood that covered the entire earth, covering even the highest mountains. Now, there was a man named Noah who was called a preacher of righteousness in Hebrews, along with his wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law, eight people in total. And they were the only ones that made it through the flood on an ark that God commanded Noah to build. God's word tells us, Peter tells us here, that scoffers are willingly ignorant of the miraculous creation. They're willingly ignorant of the miraculous flood account as well. They say, that God's judgment never came in the past, there never was a global flood, and everything has always been the same. But now look at me at verse 7. He says this. He says, They are also willingly ignorant of coming judgment. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now before we get into this, I want to ask this question here. Has anyone here been to Italy before? Has anyone here been to Italy before? All right, great. I see a couple of hands over here. Perfect. So maybe you've been here before, but in modern Italy, near the area of Naples, there are the ruins of an ancient city called Pompeii. Pompeii was a hustling, bustling city. It existed at the height of the Roman Empire, and the Pompeians lived in much prosperity. However, behind Pompeii, there was a large mountain known as Mount Vesuvius. The mountain, this this particular mountain, it had rumbled before in the past, but historians say that the Pompeians had ignored the rumbles of the mountain. They ignored the clear signs that one day this mountain might explode. And then unfortunately, in AD 79, the unthinkable happened. Mount Vesuvius suddenly erupted. and The volcano spewed hot lava and ash into the sky, and uh, it sadly destroyed the city and everybody who was living in it. Now, Pompeii wasn't discovered for many years, but the ruins of the city were eventually found. And you can even visit Pompeii today and you can see casts of the Pompeian people in their final moments. But I want to say this, friends, because God loves us, for those who haven't trusted in Christ, God's word warns us of a future upcoming judgment. He's not doing this as a scare tactic for us. This world is not going to continue on forever how it currently does. Remember, God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is because God loves us, he warns us. And he warns everyone out of his love. Now again, for those of us who are in Christ, the return of Jesus Christ is not something to worry about. We know that we are not under God's wrath. The Lord took our sins upon the cross And we can wait expectantly for the Lord's return because we look forward to living in a world without sin one day. We don't have to live in fear and Christ's return to the world. It's coming together as per his plan and there is gonna be this future return that's promised to us. As believers, that should encourage us, but it should also motivate us. It should motivate us to evangelize and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we may not be Noah with a physical ark today. But there is an upcoming judgment that God lovingly tells us about, and he says that it will be with fire. And did you know this, friends? God has given us another ark to save people with. And that ark is Jesus Christ. Just like Noah, if you are a believer today, then whether it's your coworkers, your family, your friends, you need to share the good news of Jesus Christ. No one knows when the Lord will return, but he promises that he will return. He tells us all of this out of his love for us. And so we've seen that Christ will return by remembering the scriptures. We've seen that Christ will return by expecting the scoffers along with their arguments. But now finally, Peter goes on to tell us that we can know Christ will return by trusting the Savior. Look with me at verse verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Perhaps you've heard this quote before. It goes something like this. Time flies when you're having fun. Or perhaps someone has said this to you before. The days are long, but the years are short. Or here's another one. This is one of my favorite ones. Time is too slow for those who wait, too swift for those who fear, too long for those who grieve too short for those who rejoice. Now, I want to ask you this, church. Does time actually change for any of us? Does it change based on the task that we're doing or the activity of the moment or who we're with? No, it's fixed. Time is a fixed commodity. It, It continues at the same speed, regardless of who you are. It doesn't go faster or slower based on anything that you do. However, With all of our previous quotes, we recognize that our perspective of time can change. Not time itself, but our perspective. And so Peter is saying, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day because God doesn't experience time as we do. Peter is quoting Psalm 90. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past or as a watch in the night. And Psalm 90, it praises the greatness of God and how God is above all things, including time itself, how he has created time. And so we might have been living in the last days for 2,000 years, but to the Lord, he is not being slow about his return. I like what theologian Wayne Grudem says. He says this, God sees all time equally vividly. Sometimes it's difficult for us to remember what happened last week, last month, or even last year. We remember recent events more vividly and we forget events in the past. But that is not the nature or character of God. He isn't limited by time as us. He sees all moments equally vividly and he can remember the detailed events of a thousand years as clearly as we can remember the events of yesterday. And so friends, all the things that God carries out in human history, all of his timing, it takes into account everything from beginning to end. Peter's words comfort us to know that God's timing in regards to Christ's return is perfect. He's never too early. He is never too late. God is always right on time. Now, recently I was, uh, or a friend of mine and I were recently reading the autobiography of a man named George Mueller. He was a Christian in the late 1800s and uh, he lived in England. He was originally born in Germany, but he lived in England and he was running an orphanage there and George Mueller was known as a great man of faith and a man of prayer. And he had determined that instead of asking anyone for financial help for the orphanage, he would instead pray to God for every and for any and every need that he had. And every single time, somehow, some way, God provided for the needs of the children. One morning, however, the 300 children of the orphanage woke up and they got dressed for school. But what they didn't realize was that there was no food for them to eat. And so George Mueller, he told the children to sit down on the dining room table. And then they prayed at the dining room table. They thanked God for the food. And then they waited. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door and said, Mr. Mueller, last night I couldn't sleep. Somehow I knew you would need bread this morning. And so I got up and I baked three batches for you. Soon there was another knock at the door. And it was a milkman. At the time, his cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. And the milk that he had, it would have gone rotten if by the time that he had fixed his cart. And so he asked George Mueller, he said, if you could use some free milk, here you go. And it happened to be enough to feed the 300 children. Now, the reason I share this story with you is because God does all things in his perfect timing. Much can be said here about prayer as well. But in regards to Christ's return, God knows the perfect day, the perfect moment, and he isn't limited by time as us. His timing is perfect in everything that he does. Peter goes on in verse nine now. This is what he says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter reminds the believers here that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but what is the promise that he's speaking of? Again, it is the promise of Christ's second coming. Peter reminds us that God is patient towards us. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Other translations say that God is long-suffering. He endures suffering. He does not immediately punish people with his wrath. He gives people time to reach repentance, waiting patiently because he loves us with great redeeming love. I want you to listen what the prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. He says, or God, excuse me, says this to Ezekiel. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Friends, you are called, I am called, all of us are called to love our neighbors as ourself. And the best way that we can do that is by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 15 says this. How then will they call on him who, they, who, who they have not believed? How, how and how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The new heavens, the new earth, but also the day of the Lord, Christ's return. This is being patiently held in God's perfect timing. For the purpose of the saving of souls of men and women. You and I, were called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why the Lord seemingly returns his delay. Or excuse me, delays his return. Now I want you to look at verse 10 finally with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with the roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Friends, this is a promise. The day of the Lord will come. That is an affirmative statement. That is the big idea of this here. He will return. But now I want to go a little bit more into this. What is this term, day of the Lord, that Peter uses? The day of the Lord, it is a technical term and it describes the culmination of this age. It's where the world as we know it will end. There are different views on the length and the timing of the day of the Lord, but ultimately, it is a day of judgment, and it is a day that the Old Testament refers to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the Old Testament prophets, they spoke of it as a day when God will bring righteous judgment to vindicate his name, to destroy his enemies, and to establish his kingdom. And it will also be when his righteous wrath is poured out. Now again, I want to, I want to do this again. I, do, I want to remind you, this is not a scare tactic. God tells us about future judgment because he lovingly warns us that there is a way to escape the wrath to come by trusting his son. If you love someone, you tell them about the danger that's heading their way. Now, this is a very quick side note here, but if you hear someone saying this to you, if you hear someone telling you that they know the day that Jesus Christ is gonna return, then I want you to do this, church. Turn the other way and run, okay? Do not listen to it. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 35 to 39, Christ tells us this. tells us that nobody knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. It says this. Jesus said, "The he- Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only for as were the days of noah so will be the coming of the son of man for in those days before the flood they were eating drinking marrying and given in marriage and giving in marriage until the day when noah entered the ark and they were unaware that the flood came and swept them all away and so will it be at the coming of the son of man and so finally here let's look at the end of our text at verse 10 peter says that following the lord's return The heavens, the heavenly bodies are dissolved and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And he's simply speaking to the fact that nothing is hidden from the Lord upon the Lord's return and all of reality as we know it is going to be transformed. The curse of sin will finally be removed. That's something to look forward to. Now, church, I want you to take a big breath. Uh, That was a lot. That was a lot of information. But as we conclude our message for today, I do have a few final words for you. I don't know everyone in this room, and I don't know everybody watching online as well, but I'm willing to venture that here in Markham, in the GTA, we likely can fall into three general categories as we hear Christ return. First and foremost is this. For some of us, we do have heavy, painful trials going on in our lives, but overall, in regards to our church, we are not the heavily persecuted church that that Peter was writing to in this epistle. We have the ability to gather, to worship, to share our faith. But all of this comfort, all of this accessibility can sometimes lead, lead us towards being more like the scoffer than anyone else. And I know that I can be guilty of that as well. Yes, Jesus Christ is going to return. Yes, it's going to happen suddenly. Yes, it'll be like a thief in the night. But for now, let me just live my life. I'll think about that another time. So I want to ask you this hard question. Do you have a scoffer's heart today? Do you find yourself in this category? Do you need your mind to be stirred up, as Peter said here, to live in the light of Christ's potentially imminent return? See, the king is going to return and we are going to give an account to him of how we use the gifts, the talents, the time, the treasure that he's given us. We don't need to fear his wrath that was taken upon the cross. We are reconciled with God if you've trusted in him, but we do still need to give an account of how we live our lives here on earth. We need to live in light of the king's return. And if you fall into this category, then my homework for you today because of the time we have here. Go home, read verses 11 to 13 in 2 Peter today. That is my homework to you. Read verses 11 to 13 13 if you fall into that category. Secondly, perhaps you're in this room today and perhaps you are living in light of Christ's return. Maybe you're on fire for the Lord. You know that you can meet the King at any moment. And in fact, you look forward to the day when Christ returns. And maybe you can't believe that that actually already hasn't happened as yet with some of the things that we see going on in the world. Then there is a very real... Application here in this message for you as well. Keep walking in godliness, but remember your need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is not a selfish faith. It doesn't mean that once you get saved, you climb to the rooftop and wait until Jesus Christ returns. We need to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and praying that our neighbors, our friends, our family, that they get saved. We need to be praying each day for gospel opportunities and for the salvation of our neighbors. When the Lord returns, our prayer is that as many people as possible would have trusted trusted in him and and they are no longer under his wrath. I believe that scripture teaches faith as a gift that the Lord saves, but I don't believe that it negates our responsibility to preach the saving gospel message. He uses weak men, women like us by the power of his spirit to save the souls of others through his word. And then last but not least, if you're hearing this message today and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ, then this is your chance to accept the free gift of grace and to not fear the future, but look forward to it. I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 20. He told them a parable. This is Christ. He said a parable to them that the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? See, you may may or may not believe that at any moment, that the skies can tear open and that Jesus Christ can visibly and tangibly return. But whether you live to see his return or not, we will each face him because at some point, each of us are going to pass away. And if he doesn't return before the end of our lives, you need to know this. No moment, no day is guaranteed. We need to be ready. You need to be ready to meet the king. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. His sacrifice on the cross is the only way to receive the forgiveness of your sins. And right here, right now, in your seat, if you pray in your heart to the Lord, you can recognize that you've fallen short of God's perfect standard, that you've sinned against him, but you can also accept the free gift of eternal life by confessing Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. Again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can turn from your sin and trust that he took your place upon that cross and you can have eternal life today and forevermore. That's the only thing that's going to guarantee that we can live with confidence, with hope for the future. I believe that the Father wishes for you to reach repentance today and he's giving you that opportunity if you haven't come to know him as yet. So I want to say this. I understand this was a heavy message. But for every once in a while, I I do think that we need a heavy message to stir up our minds. That's what the Peter that's what Second Peter is all about. And so God lovingly tells us these things. He lovingly tells us these things so that we can be edified and we can serve Him. So, church, let's look back to the scriptures. Let's expect the scoffers along with their arguments. And let's trust in the promise of the Savior as we go today. Let's live in light of the King's return. He is risen. He will return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of your return. This was a heavy message today, but I pray, Lord, that Peter, just as he wrote in his letters, that our minds, our hearts, that they would be stirred with the hope of your return, Lord. Father, you tell us these things of future, upcoming judgment, not to discourage us, but because you love us, you lovingly warn us of how we ought to be living in light of your return. For the believer today, Lord, for, all, for us who have trusted in you, stir us up. Encourage us to share the gospel. The only thing that we're going to bring into heaven with us is other people. We need not fear, Lord, the future of this world. We know that being united with you is our blessed hope. What a wonderful, glorious moment that will be. And then, Lord, for those that don't know you today, I pray, Father that you'd help them to make that decision, to trust in you today. And so that they too can share in the free gift of eternal life in Christ. And Father, we look forward to spending an eternity with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.